Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. It's okay if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know what's not okay? Not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more. For the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there. That even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast, Podcast. with host A. Trunk. What's up, everybody? It's Eddie Trunk, and welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast, bringing you newsmaking interviews with the biggest names in rock and metal each and every Thursday, totally free. All the interviews you hear on the podcast originate on my Sirius XM radio show, Trunk Nation, heard Monday through Friday, live 3 to 5 Eastern, on Faction Talk 103, or anytime on the Sirius XM app with audio or video. If you only listen to this podcast and you can get Sirius XM, you're only getting a tiny fraction of what I do on the radio each and every day. So please come on board and join me for the radio show. Make it real easy for you. You can get three months free. All you got to do is go to SiriusXM.com slash Eddie Trunk, and you can get three months free of SiriusXM. Here, Trunk Nation won't cost you anything. You won't even need a credit card. This week, we have two interviews for you. Uh, Two guitar heroes, actually. Amazing guitar players here back to back. We start with George Lynch who joined me to talk about his new Lynch Mob album and some other stuff. We'll follow with Brad Gillis. Great conversation with Brad talking, of course, about Night Ranger and their recent orchestra album. And we also get into his time with Ozzy with some great stories there as well that you're going to love. So a great guitar duo here. If only these guys played together, it'd be pretty darn cool. George Lynch and Brad Gillis. A guitar extravaganza this week on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. We'll start with George. Here he is. How are you, George? Hey, Eddie. How are you, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. Hey, I got to ask you something before we even get into your record. I'm curious because I was kind of going crazy about this, and this stuff makes me bonkers. So I, um, I don't know if you heard about this, but Rolling Stone put out a list about a week ago of their 250 greatest guitar players. And it's it is so bad in so many ways it's not even funny and one of the things i'm not just saying this to be self-serving i mean you're not on it um they've got joan jett at 72 and steve lukather at like 190 um they put joe perry but they don't put brad whitford it's just mind-bogglingly ridiculous 
Does yeah. the, do you get well, wrapped up in that stuff? Do you ever look at that? Does that ever bother you? Do you put any weight in uh, any of I, it or you just like I laugh only, it off? I only look at them if my name's in it. I, I scour for my <laughs> name. If I don't see my name, then I write it off. That's bullshit. Does it bother you <laughs> if your name's not in it? Or do you just, no. you, when you see well, Joe Jett a hundred no. places in front of Luca there, you like, well, forget it. There, there's the ego part of my brain. Of course it does uh, react to that, but I try to, you know, I try not to uh, care, but of course we all care, you know, uh, you want to be recognized for what you do. I mean, you work hard and, and you love what you do and you think you're creating something of value that, that, that at least some people appreciate. And, you know, so I'm not looking at it in the context uh, of a, of a contest, but, uh, but I do think it's important to anybody like myself who works hard and, 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 and value, you know, and hopefully the, uh, would like to be perceived as, as having done something of value. And so that, that's what, you know, where I think recognition matters. Uh, but listen, I'm saying, saying, you know, ranking artists is such a ridiculous premise. I think it's, uh, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, everything is in, in art is, is, uh, is uh, subjective. So why, why would that, how can you say one person is, is it can be 17 and another person is 18. That doesn't even, make any logical sense so uh, anyways yeah you know uh, a lot of these uh, polls I think and, and historically have just been true are um, uh, really popularity polls I mean you know uh, you know not Nick this is getting voted number one or two guitar players back in the 80s he's a good guitar player he's great but you know uh, I think that was more to do with Motley Crue being a huge band right right uh, right of uh, course Angus young being rated highly is I think uh, is right that he should be, but not for the same reason that Ingde is. <laughs> you know, so there's all these different things. I mean, Angus Young is arguably a more important guitar player than someone like Ingde in the in the context of the rock pantheon and what he's done for rock and roll. Uh, but and in a in a showdown of lead guitar prowess, he's not going to win. Uh, so. Against George, so, who was the guy? Who was the guy for you as a kid that you saw or heard that made you want to pick up the guitar and play? It wasn't just one guy, you know. I mean, I was fortunate enough to, and I think we've spoken about this before, to be raised uh, in an in an era where, you know, my friends would come to me at at school and they would go, "Hey, have you heard of this new band? They got this album. It's pretty cool. It's called Led Zeppelin." <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't, they weren't even a known band. It was it was right. like a new band that you discovered, Led Zeppelin. You know, yeah. so I grew up with that. Um, you know, Jimi Hendrix. Who's there's some black guy who sets his guitar on fire? You heard of him? No, I gotta check him out. Uh, uh, you know, Jeff Beck. You know, had that first Jeff Beck record. I lived off that. Uh, I, I was very fortunate to be raised, you know, on on Cream and, and all these 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 amazing. You know, uh, you know the the, the I call them the four horsemen. You know, I mean, and then everybody else that came since. And I've been a fan of everybody, so I learned from everybody. I mean, Leslie West, Michael Schenker, Eddie Ingve. I mean, all of them. They've all had a huge effect on me and continue to. So there isn't one guy. You know, it's just Johnny Winter. You know, everybody. You know, right, a lot right. of obscure guys. Alan Holdsworth. You know, uh, right. so there's not no not one guy. So I'm I'm just what? kind of this amalgamation of like all these guys and I'm not a schooled guitar player in the sense that I know theory or anything. So I've listened to all these people 
I've never learned any songs or any phrasing that they play note for note, but I sort of listen to and absorb what they do by osmosis. And then that somehow subconsciously gets, you know, becomes part of my, my, uh, my style. And I think I've just kind of, you know, spew all this stuff back out with little flavors of everybody that I've listened to throughout my whole life and, uh, kind of, but in my own way. And that's, that's all it is. That's, that's basically what I do. I'm sort of a synthesis of everything I've listened to for you, um, years. <laughs> you, you, uh, you know, recently I was talking to some friends of mine in LA and a guy like uh, Brian Slagle from metal blade, who's a good friend. And he, I recently people have been telling me a lot about your pre Dokken band, which I think was called exciter. Was that the band? It was, uh, well, uh, you can go keep going back and back, but we had a band in Southern California called the boys. And and then the boys turned into Exciter, which then turned into Dokken. Because yeah. people people told me because being an East Coast guy, I mean, I didn't know that scene and didn't didn't know those bands. But uh, many people told me that they that they thought that Exciter was a phenomenal band and always shocked that it that you didn't get you know quote unquote make it with that band. Why do you think that was? Why do you what 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 misfired on on that group? Because every time we played a gig, Rick and Van Halen came after us. And they were like, oh, oh you, yeah, oh, yeah, you were you know, opening we, we for Van Halen. Us, and we'd have management types out there and record label types out there, and we'd have, <laughs> you know, at one point Kiss was coming out, Gene was coming out to check us out, and he he was very interested in the band for a while. And and then invariably every every time we we played a lot with Van Halen and Van Halen would come out and just you know we were good but we weren't Van Halen. We weren't have... Van Halen signed by then or no? No no no. This was right when we were all trying to get signed and and they they were the first one to get picked up and they and uh, you know whatever uh, we sort of fell by the wayside. But you know we the band, our band was actually really maturing very um, and we kind of peaked just before we broke up. <laughs> so there was a brief moment where we were, our writing really took a huge leap forward and we, and, and our, and our playing and our sound and everything, our, you know, our, our cold chemistry really was starting to work and we we're firing all, all cylinders, but then the band fell apart. So, Oh, well. And, uh, yeah. you know, then we jumped into docking and uh, the rest is uh, pretty well known history. Did you have a friendship or or maybe even rivalry with Eddie Van Halen back then? Did you know him well? Yeah, I mean, you know, we came up together, and you know, we played the same places, and we we were just, you know, uh, we we didn't know each other well, we didn't hang out, but we uh, we played uh, a lot together, and we would like we would hang out, you know, we were getting guitars built and picking up parts and stuff over at Charbels or Sandoval's or whoever, you know, so we'd run into each other a lot. So we were friendly and we were, you know, we knew each other, but it was just sort of in passing. It wasn't like I was hanging out at his house or anything. Right. But uh, I did used to hang out with Terry Kilgore, which is from Eddie Kilowatt, which is really Eddie before Eddie, which I've told right. that story a bunch of times. But uh, Terry was the guy that kind of really started everything that Eddie ended up being famous for, you know, the tapping thing, his swarm brown sound and all those kind of things. Terry was doing that kind of before Eddie. Before that, Eddie was a Les Paul guy. He was really into Clapton. Other thing going on, but he was amazing. He was freaking amazing. <laughs> but he was a different thing. And then I, and him and Terry were friends. And Terry kind of 
I think he bit and hope a lot of what Terry was doing and, and just made it bigger and better, you know, with David Lee Roth and better songs and stage presence. Right. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, I could talk to you about no, the old I'm days forever. Any way to denigrate Eddie or anything. I'm just saying it was really super interesting because if you can get a hold of any of that early Eddie stuff from Mammoth where he's playing a Les Paul through a basement app, it's fucking unbelievable. But it's not, it's what's so interesting about it. It's a totally different Eddie that you haven't probably heard, which is really cool. Really, really cool. Right. And if yeah, you read early fun. interviews with him, he always saw, he always cites Clapton and Cream and all that as a big influence, yeah. but you don't hear that in what became Van Halen. You're saying he was doing that before he picked up on what Terry was doing and then took that to a whole nother level. Yeah, yeah. And I may be oversimplifying the whole process of how that all occurred, but uh, um, but also, yeah, it was a huge, uh, they were huge Montrose fans, and right. um, uh, and which is why you know, I, I believe he went, uh, you know, and got to, you know, hired Sammy or, you know, joined forces with Sammy because that was his, one of their seminal idols, you know, <laughs> and, right. he, and he got to play in a band with them, you know, which is pretty cool. Yeah. 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 No doubt. Well, I can talk to you about the old Dave days forever, but let's singer. talk, let's Dave talk about what's singer. going on. Dave wasn't a singer singer. Right. Right. Um, let's talk about what's going on now before I run out of time with you. And that is a brand new album out now called Babylon. Um, tell me about the, I mean, there's been a lot of people, as you've said yourself in and out of lynch mob over the decades. And now it's more of like a collective of different people as you go. Uh, tell me about the lineup on this record, because the singer you're working with Gabriel, he is, uh, I've seen you live with him and he's real good. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first time you made a record with him, right? Right. We felt we, well, this band's been together for a couple of years now and it's, we've got Gabriel Colon from, uh, He's from Puerto Rico, and uh, uh, we've got Jaron Galino uh, on bass, who has pretty much uh, a short story. He's felt that he was put on this earth to play bass in Lynch Mob. <laughs> I don't know why anybody in their right mind would want that, but uh, it seems like a pretty long time. I'm just kidding. But he's, he's just a brilliant, beautiful guy, and, and, and is really uh, uh, sort of designed for this gig. I mean, he's got the perfect sound style look and he's sort of our Swiss army knife. You know, he's the guy that does everything and fills in all the gaps and takes care of a lot of the stuff. And he's really, he's just a natural after all that stuff. And that's really important to have in a band. I think a guy like that. And, uh, and Jimmy, the end on drums, uh, you know, obviously we've been playing together for decades and uh, he saw it. And so, so it's kind of like Jimmy and I are the elder statesmen, and then we got these two younger guys, Jaron and Gabriel. And it's a, but it's a really beautiful fit. It's great chemistry. We laugh. We have a great time. We have fun. We work hard, and we finally established a you know kind of a, a chemistry and a sound, and it was very consistent. We were killing it, you know, uh, live. So we thought, well, let's document this. You know, I think I think it's the right thing to do to, you know, let people know what what, what this new lynch mob is all about instead of kind of a new trajectory or new precedent, you know, and they get away from chasing the wicked sensation thing, you know, which we've been doing for a lot of years with Tony and uh, set a new course. And yeah, that's what this record does, Babylon. When did you, when did you write it? Did you all get in a room and do it or did you do it on the road? Did it come together through playing live with this lineup? Uh, we, we actually took some time off and we went to this kind of uh I would say it's, I wouldn't say exactly where it was, but it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And we just sort of, you know, went into retreat and, 
hunkered down uh, and, uh, uh, you know, did it, uh, you know, out of the Old hustle. School. wanted to get away from the hustle and bustle of the city and, and having uh, distractions. And so we went out in the desert. And, and, the, and the Lynch Mob is kind of, I always think of it as a desert band because we were born in Arizona, you know, as a band and uh, created our first record out there and lived out there as a band and everything. And I think it was kind of going back to the source, you know, went back to get that desert energy. And I think it really worked out for us. When you first put Lynch Mob together back in 89, coming out of Dokken, you get Wicked Sensations, a big record. I think you told me in the past you, you, you got paid more money to make that record than any record in your career. It does well. Did you envision that original lineup? Was your hope that that original lineup with Oni, Mick, and Anthony was going to last? Would Would you have preferred that you kept the same band, or do you like so many different people coming in and out over the years uh, and changing no, stuff up? No, in, in in retrospect, in hindsight, I absolutely wish I had kept the band together, despite the difficulties we were having. And there's a reason why we earned some stuff, got rid of Oni without getting into the weeds. You know, we had a very good, valid reason. Really, at the end of the day, it's rock and roll. You know, you put up with all that kind of stuff, and you and you just keep plowing forward. And really, the, the, the it was such a magical thing that, that the, for the first inception of the band was so so wonderful. So it was a mistake to uh, kind of conform to a practical rationale to, to you know boost you know kick somebody out. You know, I mean, you know, being in a rock band isn't a day job. You know, you get to show up late. And, do bad things i guess that's rock and roll and uh, we look we were looking at it more like you know people have to show up on time and you know everybody's got to be clean and sober and fucking this is a job that's really not how you should look at it i don't think so in hindsight yeah i think it was a mistake i do want to uh, clarify something about the money yes we did get paid more money than any other record but we also spent every nickel of it <laughs> so, <laughs> what did you spend it on, on being bad no, no. Huh? what did you spend it on the bad things no, we spent it on the record. Oh, okay. Every nickel into that record. Yeah, we spent it on studios and producers and, and mixers and, and, and just expenses. And, you know, we spent a lot of time. I think we spent like over a year making that record and, you know, very expensive studios. We'd, we'd mix the whole record and then can the mix after paying for it, which is super expensive. Um, we did very, we did very expensive touring back then. We, we toured with a semi and a full sound system and a full crew and, lights and uh, LD and print house and everything. I mean, it was a, it was a massive, uh, I mean, we would show up at venues and our trucks within the club. <laughs> I mean, we had full production. I mean, you know, all these stairs and dragons and backdrops. <laughs> it was a massive thing, but you know, that's, we wanted to come off big time. So we did, but we paid for it. So, oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Um, the new album Babylon from Lynch Mob is out now. Uh, first first record made with the lineup, as we just mentioned. And again, I've seen the lineup, and if you've seen Lynch Mob in the last year or two live, you've seen this lineup too. So I'm glad I'm glad you've uh, made a studio record with them, and I've listened to it, and it, it sounds really really good. And you're going to play uh, basically a release party uh, this coming Wednesday, actually at the Whiskey, right? Day after tomorrow. Yes, sir. So you, if in the LA area, you can go see Lynch Mob. And, and George, how much of the new album will you be able to play in the set? Because you and I both know, and you and I are on a lot of the same gigs all the time. We see each other a lot. And I see it all the time. It's so hard 
for bands that have 30, 40, 50 year histories to get new music over. Sometimes they don't even end up playing. If they play one, it's a lot in the set. Are you, do you, are you going to try to, you know, work this in that way? Or do you, we've been playing, we've been playing songs, uh, two or three songs off the record for, for since we wrote them even before we recorded them. And, 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 and in that seven or eight months that we've been doing that, um, uh, people didn't know the songs when we play them live and we play them every night. Um, and, and, um, they haven't heard the record obviously. So they didn't have any reference point. And we assumed that people wouldn't like the songs, just, you know, roll their eyes or whatever. Like, come on, play something we know. Uh, but actually, and I, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying this, I'm no biased voice here, but, uh, people have freaking really loved the songs. And I, I it shocked me. And you asked the band, I, We'd get we'd get off the stage after doing it the first night. I go, I wasn't expecting that. I really thought, you know, people just ho hum or whatever, uh, ho hum response. But we got like maybe best response of the night from the new songs, and that's been consistent up until now. So it's not wasn't just a fluke, you know. And so that kind of mystifies me. I, I don't quite understand what's going on there. But anyways, <laughs> we've been lucky and had great audience reaction to the to the new songs, even though they're not familiar with them. And are you still going out and doing the guest appearance stuff with Dokken? Yeah, I'm doing a little bit of that. And then I'm doing some other stuff on my own, too, with uh, a band called AON with Terry from XYZ. Um, kind of a mix of different things. You know, um, I, I kind of find that sort of fun because it breaks it up. And I get to, you know, play different kinds of music and in different environments with different people and, you know, keeps it interesting but uh um yeah yeah i, I do uh, i still do the docking thing here and there not not a lot but a little bit i got to is... up in vegas and harris uh, next month with them and in the past i mean you you've been honest about the fact that the reason why you don't go back to docking full-time is it's just a money thing right yeah yeah i would well right i i don't think it would make sense for anybody involved financially uh because uh, it's pretty maxed out right now. Don's squeezing what he, you know, as much as he can out of the deal, and uh, as he should. And uh, uh, I think that's pretty much he's wrung pretty much everything he can out of it. You know, um, I think the only next step up could possibly be a full band reunion or close to as close to a full band reunion as we could pull off. And I don't see that in the cards. So um, having me walk on for the whole show as opposed to just the last, you know, three or four songs doesn't really benefit anybody and ex- except the fans. <laughs> the fans would probably love that, but um, on every other level, it's, there's no real payoff to do that. So there's no, um, in, there's no motivation to do that. That's my point. But you guys seem to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, the way you've been working this, where you come out for three, four songs at the end after John plays the set, it seems to uh, it seems to be like, in terms of just personalities and your, you know, that your history, it seems to be a good way to work. You, everybody seems to be kind of cool, and you guys have had a pretty good run here of, of no drama, unless I've missed something. Oh, absolutely. There hasn't been one iota of drama. No, it's been wonderful. Everybody's fine. You know, it's all good people. Everybody gets, everybody's hang, you know, hangs. John is very, very cool. He, sometimes I, I, I'm not able to bring my rig out and I get to just plug straight in his rig. It sounds great. And uh, he's been nothing but helpful and supportive and 
and, and you know, Don and I get along just fine. Everything and the band's great, and they're, they're super cool guys. So we have fun on stage and and, and off stage. You know, so nothing to complain about. You know, it's absolutely been, uh, yeah, it's not rocky in any way. So. Uh, which kind of mystifies me. I was expecting a little bit of drama at some point. Along, you know? <laughs> so maybe I need to create some. I don't know. Well, if there's drama, I mean, I'm sure you pick up on this. Don Don does take a lot of hits from from people about his voice these days and his performance. And I know he's been through a lot health wise as well. Do you ever talk to him about any of that? I mean, I know he's aware of it. Well, sure. I mean, I mean he, he talks openly about all that stuff, and it gets discussed. And, Usually, he's the one, you know, bringing it up. But, uh, um, you know, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he's just. I think he feels like, like the rest of us at our age, that we're probably uh, close to, maybe, uh, you know, doing a soft retirement. Uh, I know Lynch Mob today is announcing our uh, final ride, 2024. I'm going to be hanging it up after this year. So we're going to try to. Get is that it. right? You're ending Lynch Mob. This is the, this is 24 is going to be your last year for Lynch Mob. Yeah, we, we do have a Monsters of Rock cruise booked on March of 25. So that may be our actual final, final date because we are contracted for that. But, but, but for all intents and purposes, 24 will really be, we're going to try to work pretty hard in 24 and be, give people one final chance to see the band, you know, seeing before they die tour. <laughs> Well, why is that, George? Because you got these new younger guys in there. You made a, a real good new record in Babylon. It seems like things have been going well. Is that your call, or you just feel it's time? Um, my, I think it's yeah, it's kind of my call. But I, I the, the thought behind it is, is you know, there's as you mentioned earlier, uh, Lynch Mob has been a revolving door since since uh, uh, since its inception. And uh, this feels like a, a solid landing, you know, like this version of the band has been intact now for a couple of years and is very, very solid. And uh, I think is about as solid as it's ever going to get. What I really wasn't looking forward to is like, you know, again, another member change, another singer change and all this and that. I don't want to go through that anymore. I'd like to see this solid lineup be the book and the end cap for the story. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm going to be 70 next year. So, you know, I, yeah, but you're I, in I great still, shape and you like don't I'm have retiring. to sing. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not like I'm going to be retiring, you know, permanently. I'm going to be still going right. out probably and doing some stuff, but uh, it'll give me a freedom to kind of stretch out maybe, you know, play out as, as a solo artist, you know, and play material from all different projects or any project that I've been involved in, which is quite a few. So, you know, I can go back in time, 40, 50 years if I want I could play stuff from Exciter. Yeah. Well, true. Like Paris, Paris is Burning is an Exciter song, which became a Dawkins song. So, right. you know, stuff like that, or, you know, stuff off my instrumental solo records, uh, you know, things like that. Become a, become a little more self-indulgent, you know. Wow, that's interesting. So I didn't know that. So so Doc, uh, so Lynch Mob, one more year. And so do you, do you view Babylon as the final Lynch Mob studio record, or do you think you'll do another one before you call it? Well, that, that remains to be seen. I, I don't want to say I, I don't want to say this is our final record because we may we may look at it like, well, you know, we'll get through our, our heavy touring schedule in twenty four and you know, maybe some you know some dates in twenty five and cap it off with Monsters of Rock cruise in twenty in uh, March of twenty five, but maybe 
they didn't want to leave our options open to do another studio album um, while things slow down uh, uh, at the beginning of 25, you know. But, but you know, we wouldn't have to be out there touring and promote it. So we have to think about that. I'm not. I'm not saying we are going to do another studio record, but I definitely know I want to be that option open. Right. Well, yeah. And for people that haven't followed closely in your career, you've done a lot of stuff. I mean, you, you've played. You've had a lot of different projects, bands. You've recently made, as you said, solo records. There's been a lot of stuff you've done. The one last thing I want to ask you about before I let you go is KXM, the ever elusive KXM live shows. <laughs> Is there any update on that band ever actually playing live? Last time I saw Ray, he's like, it's going to happen, Eddie, but it hasn't. Yeah. It's funny because Ray, Corn records in Bakersfield, and I, I live, our Southern California place where my studio is, is right off the freeway where he go drives to Bakersfield and he's working out there. And he always comes by here and, you know, we end up shooting the shit and, you know, and Doug gets a you know, we text each other and everything. And it's like, it's, you know, we all want to do it. But it's just, it's tough, you know, it's, it's tough to get schedules together. I mean, it was a miracle we ever did the first record. You know, we really had to pull pull teeth to make that happen. So um, maybe with Lynch Mob kind of slowing down after 24, that would be the time to ramp up KXM or something else. I don't know. But as we speak, I am literally in the studio today, like every other day. I've been in the studio for about a week, uh, writing and recording a new Dirty Shirley record. Uh, then that's Dino, Dino singing, right? Yeah, yeah, but Dino's not Dino's not doing this record. I don't think I. Uh, um, we have a, a girl named Cassandra who's uh, um, freaking amazing. It's Dino's favorite female singer, and she's his, uh, and he's her favorite singer. So she's 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 a power singer. I mean, she's amazing. She's amazing, and it's kind of a cool twist, I think. You know, to have a girl. You know, up front, I don't know if we can still call it Dirty Shirley, I guess. Or maybe she needs to change her name to Shirley. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, anyways, amazing. the record's amazing. Uh, we, just, uh, we just literally wrote the last, I wrote the last song last night uh, and recorded the guitars on it. And uh, we're just kind of going through things here in the next couple of days, just kind of crossing T's and dot and I's and things like that. And that'll be in the can. Uh, T, uh, you know, End Machine 3 is finished and that'll be coming out early next year um and is that with robert singing no 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 we have a, a new singer um girish his name is girish and uh he's, he's from india and, and 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 people are like what oh, oh man <laughs> take another way from robert but this guy is fucking stunning he's like on a dino level you know different a little thicker voice and bluesier style than, than Dino, a little more our style, you know. Dino's a little more metal, but uh, a little more dramatic. But this guy's freaking amazing, yeah. So uh, it's uh, Frontiers heard the record, and it's just beside themselves. They just they're like uh, we were fire, firing on all cylinders on this one. Everything came together. So it's by far and away the best VM Machine record and probably best record I've done ever. You know, it's just all just... Wow. Everything about it is just like stunning. I'm just like, God damn, I, I played this? Holy crap. I played that. <laughs> and then right now I have an instrumental record that's been out for about a month called Guitars at the End of the World. Right. Yeah. So, so you got a lot going a lot on, stuff. man. Yeah. You yeah. might be 70, but you ain't slowing down at all. Well, no, I'm speeding up because I want people to realize that I'm a genius after I'm dead. <laughs> I, just wish, I just wish they would have told me before I died and not put me on that freaking best guitar player 250 guitar players 
in the world, but leave out George Lynch and like, ah, damn. Maybe no, we're going to revise want. that list. George, I'm revising that list because there's so many great players like yourself not on it. So uh, this week I'm doing my own list and I can guarantee you, you will have a prominent spot on there, George. And wait, 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 so how many, how many guitar players is on the list? 250. Okay. So you could come up with a trunks, uh, I am. Uh, version of that list, but you could call it the best 251 guitar players and then just put my name in the end. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm going to come up with a real list that makes sense of really great guitar right, players right, like right. yourself that were excluded by this nonsense. I'm going to set it straight. All right. Well, listen, if everybody had a, a guitar pole, uh, every person on the planet had a guitar pole, guess how many guitar poles we'd have that are all unique and different? Eight billion. <laughs> Right. It's true. Everybody's got an opinion. It's true. It's true. It's very true. Well, listen, man, I'll let you go. Um, New album is out now from Lynch Mob uh, Babylon. Check it out. If you're in the L.A. area Wednesday night at the Whiskey, the concert release party. And we learned that uh, probably last last year and change of uh, Victory Lap here. Farewell for Lynch Mob, which uh, I don't believe anybody when they say they're doing a farewell, George, but we'll go with that for now. Well, we made a we invested in making a poster, so we have to go. We have to uh, <laughs> go through with it. And, it, and it's final ride twenty four. Final ride twenty four. There's yeah. the verb. Not, not right. farewell. It's final ride. Got it. All right, man. Well, listen. I'll let you get back to the studio. Good talking to you. I hope to see you soon. All right. Thank you, Eddie. You got it, man. Bye, bye. Thanks to George Lynch. Always great talking with him. Always an unfiltered, very open and honest guy. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Next up, great conversation with Brad Gillis. We get into Night Ranger stuff. Also, great Aussie stories. Here's Brad. So, a um, lot to talk about with you, but let's get right into what you're calling about and what the band is currently promoting, and that is your first album with an orchestra, 40 Years in a Night with Contemporary Youth Orchestra. I had a chance to watch some of it because it was shot. I've had a chance to listen to some of it. And uh, tell me about the idea to do this, Brad. Obviously, other rock bands have done this over the decades. Tell me how it landed on Night Ranger's lap to to do your music with an orchestra. Well, I tell you, Eddie, it's been kind of a bucket list thing for us to do things a little different and actually do this orchestra gig. And uh, our road manager, Ed Rapepi, uh, lives out in Cleveland. And, you know, he had this idea, this Cleveland Youth Orchestra, possibly joining up with them to do this this record, this DVD. So uh, we started going over ideas and I planned out a date and, you know, possibly getting together and with the kids and going over all the arrangements and such. And it just, everything just worked out. And this is about a year ago. So it's been a year in the making to put this, get it all together and put it out. But uh, we uh, set up our keyboard player, Eric Levy, who is a phenomenal keyboard player and just, you know, it seems to know all the orchestration parts where everything intertwines with all the different instruments and got him involved with helping out uh, Christopher Moran, who is the uh, conductor for the Cleveland Youth Orchestra to put this thing together. And I tell you, man, you know, they spent probably a month 
uh, with the rehearsing the parts and trying to come up with new cool eclectic parts to may, maybe come into you know different songs and intertwine within the songs and and uh, then we went out and spent uh, a couple of days rehearsing with them and these kids were so excited to do something like this you know and you could see it on their faces and their anxiety and you know and uh, then we you know that that next night we we filmed it live and. Uh, and it turned out real well, man. I'm very happy with everything going on. And we had a couple special moments uh, within the shows where we, um, as Night Ranger, we do this drum solo in the middle of our show. And in, individually, the five of us get up, you know, the four of us get up with Kelly. So the five of us are playing drums, you know, and it's kind of cool. It's been going off real well live. But, you know, we ended up throwing it back to the percussion uh, instruments of the uh, youth orchestra to have them play along with us and it turned out really cool man and you know the finished product is great uh, it was on access tv uh, last saturday night they're going to play it again but the dvd is available and i gotta tell you there's something new and exciting for the band eddie well after 40 plus years yeah to do something different and all that i imagine that would be interesting but it sounds like it's something that you guys would wanted to do for a while then as what you said and you the the actual performance that people see and hear actually took place just under a year ago. It was done last November, but it sounds like there was a good month of of produ of uh, production and working out who's going to play what, which is the part that always fascinates me about this, Brad, when hard rock bands work with an orchestra, because I guess you all have to kind of sit down and figure out, okay, we have songs in our catalog we have to do because they're big songs. For you guys, obviously, Sister Christian, yes. Don't Tell Me You Love Me, uh, Rockin' America. You, you know, you've got a, a good five, six songs that have to be in there. But then, you you know, there's 12 tracks on this record. You're going to find five, six others from a very deep catalog that you either want to do in this or that you feel are going to work best with an orchestra. So talk about that decision on putting a set list together that was going to work in this context. Well, you know, Eddie, we have the luxury of playing what we want. No one tells us what to play, what to do. You know, this is a band that's been, you know, uh, pretty much uh, a staple and for 40, a little over 40 years now. So we just wanted to go in and, and, and do the songs we thought would be great for the record and have the orchestration uh, orchestra come in and, and enhance that. So, um, you know, we just went a little deep on a couple of cuts and, uh, you know, uh, once they got a hold of the tracks, the uh, CYO, the Cleveland Youth Orchestra, uh, the conductor, Christopher, was able to uh, go in and, and, and pretty much hone them and get them dialed into what we were doing. And, you know, we didn't want the orchestra to be playing over us. We wanted them to enhance us. So um, we uh, just made sure the parts were, you know, filling in real nice and adding to the songs that we were putting on the record. And it turned out real good, man. And these kids were all open ears, man, all open ears, just ready to do whatever, you know, we're told to do. And, you know, they were so excited. I mean, the band was excited to do it because whenever you uh, play and record something live, you know, it's going to be out on video, especially uh, so that added pressure that comes with it, you know. And these kids were, you know, the look on their faces like, oh, my God, you know, when they finally got on the big stage and got set up and did to do the actual show, you could see the excitement in all their eyes. And it turned out really well. You know, we just uh, wanted to make sure it was on point and, and the best it could be mix wise and everything. And uh, luckily, uh, my good buddy, Brian Isley, 
came in and did the uh, you know ten or eleven camera shoot of everything, and he's uh, he's with Center Center City Films out in Philadelphia, but he's did the last couple uh, Night Ranger uh, videos for us when we release a record, so he's been involved with uh, us uh, pretty tight last couple of years. So we had him come in and video it, and I tell you, man, he just knows what he's doing there. So. The whole project entered, uh, in my eyes and ears, ended up turning out stellar. So we're very happy with it. And man, I'm just, you know, just thinking down the line, how cool would it be, you know, to have, you know, maybe a little orchestra come in, you know, come in for a couple of shows here on the road and have them come in and play along, you know, you know, that whole foreigner, uh, I want to know what love is. And they go on and they, right. they bring in the whole, uh, you know, the, all these vocals and all these background singers in the town, you know, sing, you know, the, the chorus, which I always thought that was super awesome. In fact, when we toured with Warner, they had these, uh, these vocal, uh, vocalists come in and sing on that. I always thought that was cool, but you know, maybe it's to the point where we could probably get small orchestras to come out and, and enhance our show for, uh, you know, a couple of gigs coming up, but that's, you know, to be, to be seen, but, uh, but I actually, you know, just excited about the whole thing and, and it's doing well. And, uh, and, and as far as this band, I mean, I'm back out again tomorrow. Never a dull moment with Night Ranger. I, I think we're up to like 85 shows this year, Eddie. Jeez. Wow. Well, you know, and, and one more thing on the record, which, again, is out now, 40th anniversary. Uh, it's 40th anniversary for the band. 40 Years and a Night is the name of the record with Contemporary Youth Orchestra done in Ohio. Um, you touched on something, Brad, that is really important to me when bands do this because – I there there's been a lot of bands that have done stuff like this. Some cases it works, some cases I don't feel it does work because as a fan of hard rock myself and very guitar driven music, one of the things I don't like about it when I feel it doesn't work is when it softens and takes the edge off the band and off the guitars and it it feels like it's kind of crowbarred in the orchestra and it just becomes this thing where everything loses a little bit. You guys, through the arrangement, through the mix, I'm not sure how, but managed to strike a perfect balance because anybody that thinks from just hearing about this record that it's going to be some sleepy Night Ranger record with an orchestra would be totally wrong. You guys and you and Kerry uh, are still full on, you know, blazing through this. So that's the thing, and that's why... I think you found the right songs to make it work, but you found the right way to incorporate and then not incorporate and have the orchestra lay back. And striking that balance to me is the whole key for me as a fan as to whether this stuff works or not. Yeah, it's funny you say that and touch on this because uh, there's a few comments before it was released with people going, hey, man, you know, you're going to soften up the, the classic, you know, big rock Night Ranger hits. And uh, we tried to make sure, you know, it, it's all in the mix, Eddie. It's all in the mix and, and actually the parts coming in and out, but we wanted to make sure it enhanced our music and not over would override uh, uh, the arrangements of what's going on. Especially you got songs like, you know, don't tell me loving and rock in America. I mean, those are pretty much slamming tunes that we just wanted them enhanced. So it was mainly in the mix to bring it down to where it should be. Uh, the uh, the arrangements of, of the uh, orchestration to make sure it didn't take it out of two too, too much out of context and uh you know we went back and forth listening to mixes and watching the videos uh months back to make sure it was where we wanted it and 
you know, uh, we, 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 found, we figured a good balance for everything and, and uh, just wanted the orchestration to enhance the Night Ranger catalog. And we feel that we got there with it. Yeah, no, I agree. You really did. Now, speaking of live shows, I just had a chance to see you live not too long ago in Jersey uh, on the Brett Michaels tour that you guys did. You had a good time with that, it looked like. Everybody was having a blast out there. Oh, it was a blast, man. Are you kidding? It, it turned into being a party. You know what I mean? Just having fun. No egos. Everybody's, you know, just having a good time. And Brett is such he's such a great guy and just, just so warm and, and uh, you know, inviting and just wanted everything, you know, great and fun. And, you know, uh, you know, the, the Jefferson Starship opening up all full of hits. You know, then we had, you know, of course, uh, Mark McGrath, Sugar Ray coming in, did a couple of his hits. Steve O'Jerry did a couple, you know, his journey for 10 years, did some of the big journey hits. And and it was just such a blast because, you know, and we had a shorter set. So every song that was played that night was a, a hit song at one point, you know. And and at the very end, Brett wanted to have, a, have fun and do Sweet Home Alabama and have everybody come out and pitch in and, and, and sing and trading off uh, verses and stuff with so everybody came out for that and, and he wanted me to, to, to play guitar do the solos and, uh, on it so i just you know i love to jam i grew up jamming and you know that's all i did when i was a kid you know go out and jam and go jam at clubs with friends and i still do it you know wherever i can so and you know you never it's like a box of chocolates you never know what you're going to get because uh <laughs> you know jamming the on the sweet home of alabama i stuck to a couple of melodies but then i just go off and do my thing do my, do my little wang bar harmonic and go crazy and and it was a blast it was a great tour um looking forward to something like that for next summer too uh, whereas it'd be as fun as this uh, Brett Michaels tour, which was, and we did, Eddie, we did great numbers, man. We didn't know how we would do, and everybody came out. We were doing an average of eight to nine thousand people a night, and that is awesome. Yeah, no, I was there. I saw it firsthand. You, uh, you referenced something a second ago that I've often asked you about, and I asked you about this actually not too long ago on the YouTube show you did with me, Don and Jim. But I wanted to ask you for this audience who didn't see that. You referenced doing your, your whammy bar thing. And I, I've often referred to you as the, the king of the whammy bar and the guy that really turned that into something. And it's such a signature of your playing. Wh where did that come from in your playing style? Where, where did you, as a guitar player, when you were coming up and learning and starting to develop your style, where did the... Uh, the use of the whammy bar come from for you that it would became so prominent in your style. What, what did you take that from? Well, uh, you know, I grew up uh, when I was a kid growing up with the, uh, in the late sixties with my brother being seven years older than me, having, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page was my three idols. And, and, you know, I ended up getting myself a 57 Strat when I was about 17, 18 years old. And I just started filling with the bar and just kind of trying to have fun with it and wouldn't stay in tune. It just would not stay in tune. So I ended up trading that 57 strap to a friend of mine for my 71 Blacklist Fall Custom, which I still own. Uh, and then I ended up, uh, you know, then in 78, Eddie Van Halen came out, you know, and I was just blown away, everybody, like everybody, blown away with his playing and stuff. And he was using that uh, Floyd Rose tremolo system, you know, which is the bar that, you know, I've taken wiggle around and do my thing. And I, I told myself, I got to get one of these. So 
Sure enough, you know, Eddie got the first one, Neil Sean got the second one, and the third one was at a store in San Francisco called Don Weir's Music. I took a, le- a white Les Paul custom cream colored and took it down there and tra- traded it in for a uh, for a the third Floyd Rose ever built, and they their uh, uh, their luthier there put a uh, redid a fret job on my uh, guitar, my red strap that I play now. And uh, added a 20-second fret. So basically, I trade a Les Paul Custom for the third Floyd Rose in a fret shop. People thought it was crazy, thought it was nuts. I started fiddling around with it. Uh, Eddie was doing all these uh, you know, harmonic dives and stuff. And I thought, well, I want to be different. So I started hitting the harmonics and raising it up. You know, Then I was fiddling around one day, looking in the mirror, trying to get stage moves together. And I was banging on my guitar. And I went, and it go, made these sounds. Like, Where in the hell is that coming from? And I figured out it was the tremolo bar shaking. So the last two notes of our first single released in early 83, Don't Tell Me You Love Me. You could hear my big whammy bar pull-up harmonic. Uh, before that, and then, uh, excuse me, before that, you'll hear my, my little cricket sound. And the big whammy bar uh, pull-up. So I just wanted to be different. Now, you got to realize in the early 80s, you got people like Ingve Malmsteen coming out, all these great you know, players, uh, you know, George Lynch, Neil Sean, you know, and then, you know, all these, you know, shredders that came out. And, you know, uh, I I just had to be different. I wanted a signature sound. And a lot of these guys, you definitely know it's them. And a lot of them, you're not sure who it is. I wanted people to know who I was when I played a solo. So I started incorporating uh, melody and harmonics and, and whammy bar stuff and, and a lot of my solos that I played. And it really came off uh, doing the Stars video with Ronnie James Dio in 1985. Oh, yeah. I believe it was 85. Uh, yeah. You know, everybody was there. Every every guitar player in Asheville was there. And I just, you know, I wanted to, you know, I think it was 16 guitar players doing solos in a row, you know, and I just had to be different. So I just kind of went off and did kind of a whammy harmonic solo and, uh, you know, and uh, just to be different. And, uh, you know, it just kind of stuck, you know, and, and, um, uh, it's, it's part of my thing, part of my style, and part of my groove, and all my guitars are set up with. I try to find these original Floyd Roses, which uh, Floyd Rose, uh, that's the guy who invented them uh, from Seattle, Washington. He made the first. And Brad, real quick, three. Brad, real quick, let me ju- let me jump in on that. For people that don't play okay. guitar, and I don't, but I know what it is. But a lot of people probably listening don't. What what that it's because it sounds like that system that Floyd Rose system was a real game changer for your style doing this and for anybody that yes. uses the bar. But if I'm not mistaken, what that system actually did and does is previous to that, if you use the bar, it would often put the guitar out of tune. That system enabled you to use the bar while keeping it in tune. Am I right on that? Yes, the deal with the Floyd Rose systems when he came up with it and designed it back in the late seventies. Not only did he make it twice as thick and 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 and, and uh, case hardened steel, uh, he also devised a clamp system that goes on the nut of the guitar, which is by the headstock where the tuners are. And this is a uh, something where you need to actually go into the guitar and and route into it and take that nut off and and install this Floyd Rose nut. So that is the other side of the system that solidifies the clamping. Uh, so once you tune your guitar, stretch all the strings out, you, hit the, you, know, you take an Allen wrench and you clamp them down, which is at the nut, which is up by where the tuning pegs are. That solidifies it. That uh, So when you go crazy on the bar, it keeps it in tune. Now, 
I entered, you know, the ones he built in his garage are the ones I'm looking for. And I try to find all the time because that's the first generation of Floyd's that were case hardened steel. Now, when I talked to Floyd about it at a NAM show, that big conference down in LA and Anaheim, he said, yeah, man, I made those so uh, with case hardened steel and so solid that, you know, uh, they won't break, they won't flux, they won't, you know, and, and pretty much, those are the ones I try to find. And out of the 25 or 30 that he made in his garage, I think I got about at least about a dozen of them. And I'm still trying to find them. But uh, but uh, that it was a game changer. It was a game changer for Eddie, um, you know, Van Halen and, and for me. And it just puts a whole uh, new perspective on my soloing when I play because I can grab that like Jeff Beck. He was so good on the so good on the tremolo bar. And he, you know. But he would take that thing and just, oh, man, he'd just go up and down and move it around. He was so great at it. You know, he is the king of the whammy bar. Um, but I just took it, and I kind of yeah, took it to 11 by raising it up and going crazy with it and stuff. But he, Jeff Beck used it very tastefully, you know, in his playing. And I I watch him all the time and watch these videos. And, and I go, geez, man, he's just so smooth at it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I'm, you yeah. know, I'm a little more boisterous in my playing and a little more flamboyant. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, I, just, I love you for it. And and you, you bring up a great point because when you talk about that hearing aid, which I don't know if you saw the Dio documentary, but there's a lot in there on hearing aid. And uh, oh, yes. you, you, there's a million guitar players on that track, but with the minute you take your section of the solo, you know that's Brad Gillis because you just own it with that bar and that sound. It's like jumps right out at you. Do, do you what do you re, what do you remember about hearing aid with all those guitar players and all those egos in that studio at the time? Oh. Well, I knew first of all, dude. I knew I couldn't compete. Uh, you know, so I had to do the whammy bar thing and, and it turned out great, but Ronnie was so great and just so, you know, just a great man. He just wanted this to turn out great and for, you know, it was for a good cause and, and, uh, he treated everybody the same and fairly and wanted to get the best out of everybody in our little session. So I think everybody kind of went in and did maybe a couple takes, uh, and he'd pick out the best one to throw on the record. Um, but you know, it, these guys, it was just so fun, you know, hanging out with them. It was, you know, and then when we all got together to sing, we're stars, you know, the big chorus thing, you know, there's literally 50 of us on stage, uh, with microphones singing the chorus. And that was interesting, but you know, there was such great, all the vocalists that sang were great and the guitar players and it's, you know, if you get a chance, it's, it's on YouTube. It's everywhere. Just look up stars, Ronnie James Dio, and you could, you know, and you know the fans out there could uh, hear what I'm talking about and how cool it was and and uh, what what a what a big deal it was for a great cause. Hey, when was the being a Bay Area guy? And I don't know if you got to run. You got a few more minutes because I love talking to you and sure getting these stories. Of course, of course um, being a Bay Area guy, and you mentioned uh, Eddie Van Halen a couple different times. I was just, I had George Lynch on yesterday and Lynch was talking about seeing Eddie coming up on the scene and they were both kind of playing the LA scene at the, at the same time, Lynch and, and Eddie Van Halen. And George was telling mm -hmm. me about guys that were actually doing what Eddie was doing before Eddie, but Eddie took it to a whole, whole nother level and all of that. For you being from the Bay area in California, when was the first time you heard or saw Eddie Van Halen? Did you see Van Halen? Did they come through your area in the club days before they got a deal and all that? 
I was actually in a band called Rubicon back in the late 70s with Jack Blades. And we were down in L.A. uh, recording and doing some work down there. And I had went to the Troubadour or whatever it was, one of the... I'm not sure if it was the Roxy or the Troubadour or whatever it was. It was 1978, 79, uh, 78. I guess right before the right when the record was coming out, the first Van Halen record. And I went and saw him play because he was, everyone said, oh, you got to check out this great new guitar player. So I went and saw him play. So when he did his tapping thing, he actually turned around and wouldn't face the audience. So he didn't want people to see what he was playing. Yeah, you know? I'd heard that. And I, was yeah, I heard that, he used to do that. Going, yeah, Eddie was doing that, and 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 I was like, oh, "What's he doing? That sounds great." And then, of course, the record comes out, and everybody, you know, figured out he was the, the tapping king, and uh, took it to the took it to a whole new level. Um, I guess there was guys that did it many years back, but uh, Eddie made it commercially viable for for rock and rollers, you know. And then, uh, and of course, known for you know the, such as flamboyancy on, on doing that, but uh, you know, and then. Uh, Boy, when when uh, uh, Running with the Devil came out, wow! I was like, "Are you kidding me?" And it, you know, to hear that that record was just recorded in like ten or twelve days is just amazing because that first record produced so great and sounded so great, and and it just took over the airwaves. You know, everybody wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. You know, um, but I just took what he did and, and implemented the whammy bar because uh, I was uh, that was my thing uh, back yeah. then. But uh, you know, I mean, you know, just growing up with all these great players, you know, uh, I used to go to Winterland and and uh, places here in the Bay Area growing up. And I saw everybody from Kiss to Blue Oyster Cult to, you know, I mean, oh, I remember, uh, you know, all the great bands coming up then. And I was just a kid, but, you know, just blown away on. And I, I just told myself, hey, I'm going to be up there someday. Ah, you know, it was always a, a bucket list thing for me to play Winterland. Of course, it closed down before I made it big but you know we played the Fillmore in San Francisco a few times and boy that place is awesome all the memories back then and the posters on the wall just an amazing place but the Bay Area was a fun place to to grow up of course you had Journey here you know I was a deadhead for a couple of years and uh, really yeah 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 I kind of went to no whammy route. bar in the Grateful it's Dead good. music Brad <laughs> yeah you know it's so funny I just kind of went through that you know I mean it was phase and went and saw him on new year's at the cow palace and and uh i won't get into what everybody was doing back then but it was trippy <laughs> it was trippy eddie uh but uh, you know um you know i just went through the faces but you know i've always been a rock and roller and then you know of course getting with ozzy back in 82 after that tragic death of randy rose i mean boy oh that's that's a whole nother ball game that's a whole nother well well story. yeah and i got i can't let you go without uh, one last thing to asking you about that because when you talk about night ranger being 40 41 years old since the first record at this point the what people i think forget about is your time in ozzy and the release of dawn patrol the first night ranger album were kind of synonymous. They were happening at the same time because you were in Night Ranger at the time you were coming in, uh, you know, after Randy passed to do Ozzy. And when you talk about your playing style, I mean, you're only there's only one Ozzy record in the catalog that you're on, and that's the live album Speak of the Devil, which um, you know, which I love, and it's all Sabbath tunes done by Ozzy. But you know, t- tell me and tell the audience if you if you if you can for a minute about. 
your approach to playing the Sabbath stuff when you did that record. And then of course, you know, coming in there, I mean, Bernie Torme was there for a minute before you. Most people said that didn't work. I didn't see it, but Bernie, great player, but wasn't the right fit. But for you coming in there, I mean, you've talked about it before, even to this day, Night Ranger will play an Aussie song in your in the set as a little tip of the hat to that period. But I loved what you did with the Sabbath stuff on Speak of the Devil. I loved your take on it. I loved the the tone, the way you play it. But but talk about approaching the Sabbath stuff and then having to go in there and do the Randy stuff too. Well, when I uh, when I got the call, um, yeah, I'd make this long story not too long here. When I, I was I was you know, Night Ranger was trying to get a record deal. No one knew who we were here in the Bay Area. We decided just to make the record, try to make a great record, and shop it and not play around me i i just want to play I, you know i don't want to play so i started this band called the alameda all-stars around 1980 and started playing clubs in the bay area uh, we started and i went and saw randy play at the uh open stadium a day in the green with ozzy uh, in summer 1981 and i was blown away so i started you know we started playing a couple ozzy tunes in our set i remember driving up to the lucky lion on the hill in oakland which is the nightclub up there and I heard on the radio that Randy had died in this plane crash. And I freaked out, man. I pulled over my truck and uh, sitting there, are you kidding me? Now, my father, Eddie, my father was a pilot, 40 years a pilot. And not only did he retire on 747s, but he had a private pilot's license out of Oakland. He used to take me up in Cessnas. I used to fly him with him. So, you know, just to think that, like, what happened? You know, how did it happen? Then find out it was a tragic not so nice situation how that happened um you know went up to the lucky line that night and did a couple of, did a tribute to randy and uh and played a couple of songs anyway uh this guy saw me play preston thrall did you hold on brad real off. quick let me jump in there yep. did you know randy did you know him personally no. oh no okay. no i never met him I just you're just a fan him yeah i was nobody you know it's just like you know i played with rubicon <clears throat> we did you know did okay with that band but I just went and saw him play, and I was blown away. So I started. We just started doing these songs in the set. You know, I think it was uh, we did Crazy Train, and we were doing a uh, Over the Mountain or whatever. You know, a couple of them. And uh, anyway, so uh, Preston Thrall said, "Hey, man, I might be able to get to the gig with with Ozzy." I said, "Yeah, okay." Sure enough, two days later, uh, waking up at you know six in the morning to a phone call from New York and it's Sharon Arden going, hello, Bradley, this is Sharon Arden. Should we like to fly you to New York? I thought somebody was screwing with that. I go, all right, who is this? You're waking me up. No, no, it's Sharon. Let me put Ozzy on the phone. I said, yeah, put Ozzy on the phone. So this, oh, Bradley, uh, grab a pen and paper. I want you to write down these songs. Right? And all of a sudden I start freaking out that these guys are really getting into it. They're screwing with me or it's really Aussie. Now them being in New York, New York and me being in the Bay area, there was a delay in the phone that when my father used to call back home, I'd hear this delay and I heard this delay. So I knew it was for real. I freaked out, got a pen and paper, wrote this, all these 19 songs down and said, Aussie, I only know a few of them. He says, you'll learn them, right? I said, well, I sure will. So I only had two days to learn what I could. And they flew me to New York and Bernie was with the band and, and so I would, you know, sit in my hotel room with the uh, live uh, cas two cassettes with Randy on it from earlier in 1982 that had the full show on it and had all the segues between songs. So I sit in my room with a boombox and, a, and uh, you know, cassette and then a little amplifier, and I'd learn all day what I could. Luckily, Eddie, I learned by ear as a kid. And that really helped me learn this Randy stuff. I would just go over and over it and, 
and, and learn the, the best I could. Anyway, so um, then at night, I'd go see them play, and I'd be at the soundboard looking at this big, huge castle, dude, and it's like, and all the flames and stuff, and, and, and the sound man would look at me, and he'd go, <laughs> good luck, buddy. You know, okay, okay. <laughs> You know, hey, what was your so, Brad? Let me jump in there. Let me jump in there real quick. What was your yeah. impression of? I never. I think Bernie Torme played the Garden here in New York with them, but I didn't go. But I think that was like his last show. But but Bernie. That's the night. No 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 no. That's the night I w- I flew to New York. They were playing Madison Square Gardens that night. Right. So when they flew me to New York on that Tuesday. Um, I didn't get into the hotel, the Helmsley Palace, uh, until 11 o'clock at night, and nobody was there, and they were all at uh, Madison Square Gardens playing with Bernie. Now, they had got home later that night, and uh, and the road manager, Larry McNeeny, called me up. He said, Brad, you got in okay? And I said, yeah. He goes, what are you doing? I go, sit in my room. He says, come on up and meet Sharon and Ozzy. So... You know, so I, I went up to the room and I knocked on the door and, and Larry answered. He goes, hey, man, everything OK? And and uh, I said, yeah, yeah. And uh, he goes, come meet, you know, Sharon and Ozzy. And I'm, so I met Sharon. Oh, Bradley, you made it. Uh, come meet Ozzy. You know, and Ozzy's sitting on the table and there was like 40, 50 people in this suite all doing interviews. And, uh, uh, you know, everybody, all the New York press was there, you know. And I look at all and Sharon goes, Bradley, this is Ozzy. And Ozzy looks at me and goes, go get your guitar. <laughs> went, oh, okay, uh, I, I, I don't have an amplifier. Go get your guitar. Okay. But I'll wait, what I, what I want to know, I want you to pick this up because I love this. If you have time, I'd love hearing about all this. But I want to ask you real sure, quick, sure, sure. was Bernie Torme there? And, like, Bernie often gets, you know, crushed for his – you know, it just he wasn't the right guy. No, no one ever said he was a bad guitar player, that he just didn't fit. Did you meet Bernie? And Ber- was Bernie like, good luck, and I'm out the door? Like, how did yeah, that work? Was, no, no, Bernie was fine. But he was, he didn't want to be in the band. He had his own, own band going in England. He just stepped in to be the interim guitar player until they found the next guy. So he was never going to be in the band. He really... Uh, God bless his soul. He passed away a couple of years ago, but he kind of just went through the motions. Um, um, you know, he didn't spend the time learning the Randy licks uh, like I spent the time trying to get it, you know, to learn the best I could. And the thing was, you know, even Rudy told me, he goes, he goes, Brad, do your thing, man. Try to stick to the classic solos. And then, you know, and, you know, and you can put your style in there a little bit here and there. And so, you know, you got these classic solos by Randy Rhodes that you just got to duplicate. There's, there's, you know, I mean, they're all over the radio, um, and and I did my best to to follow along and do do it the best I could. You know, I maybe not note for note, but I tried to get close. Uh, and then there's other songs where I was able to solo, do my own thing, or write out solo, whatever, and I was able to put my inflections into the Randy stuff, right? So, um, you know, it was really the, the first night I screwed up. Uh, I I did sound check and Ozzy didn't even show up for sound check. We only did seven out of 19 songs. So here I am, the new guy coming in that's never played with this band that only did a seven song sound check without Ozzy. No pressure there, Eddie. But I tell you, man, it was either shit or get off the pot. You know, I knew I had to get myself together 
and make this happen. Now, Rudy was awesome. Don Airy was awesome. They helped me out the best I could. Any questions, they come to my room, they sit down, we go over the stuff, you know, and, uh, and a lot of it with uh, Don Airy was uh, the harmony where, you know, Randy and, and Don would play together on parts and just getting those right. Anyway, so I ended up playing that night and, uh, you know, <laughs> less than like an hour before you go on, Rudy goes, hey, by the way, you got to swing your guitar neck back and forth on over the mountain. You know, and you start off, are you kidding me? So I'm looking in the mirror <laughs> for a half hour trying to play the riff and swinging my guitar back and forth. There's choreography, okay. too. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, and, and, and from Rudy, it's like, never, never outstage, upstage Ozzy. Uh, always stay in the back when you solo off front, when you got, get done, go on back, you know, which was pretty much a given, you know, I mean, you just do your thing, you go back in a band like Ozzy Osbourne. So anyway, so I go up to play the show and uh, I screwed up on Revelation Mother Earth, which is a ballad and halfway through it starts kicking into the fast part. Well, I went into the fast part, a, a verse and a chorus too early. And I started going, gun, 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 gun. <laughs> and everybody Ozzy looks at me with this look of death. And everybody's like, you know, look at Rudy. Rudy's like, no, no. <laughs> I stopped playing and they're still going. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, holy crap. Anyway, so I got my place back into, into the song and finished it out and finished the night. And, and then, you know, the next night, everyone, I go, sorry, I screwed up. And I was going, Brad, you did fine, man. You did awesome. And so the next time I'm going on stage, backstage, getting ready to go on. And, and Sharon goes, Bradley, you, you're doing okay, but tonight don't fuck up you know anyway uh, <laughs> it, so that was uh that and then you know i got it together and two weeks later eddie we did the king biscuit flower hour from memphis tennessee live broadcast nationwide and you know two weeks into the tour i finally had it together i was uh, settled in feeling pretty good and that came out great and i remember all the night Ranger guys you know it, uh you know jack and kelly everybody listening to it and said you know brad he's never coming back but, you know, the tour was pretty heavy. It was emotionally thick for everybody on the tour. And towards the end, you know, Rudy ended up leaving and, and uh, just too much and just uh, ended up going back to Quiet Riot. And they got a record deal, you know, and of course, came out with a huge bang. And then Night Ranger got a record deal. So I quit Ozzy, too. And, you know, here I am 41 years later still with the same band, whereas Ozzy's already been through like, you know, six, seven guitar players. So... You know, it would have been great to do a, a studio record with Ozzy. Could have, would have, should have. But uh, it's all good now. The, the last thing, though, on this, and, and, and where I wanted to talk about real quickly, was the record itself, Speak of the Devil, because that was Ozzy doing all Sabbath. It was kind of like Ozzy's counter move to Sabbath at the time and doing sure. all those songs. So that's a whole different thing for you to tackle, which is playing all Tony Iommi, basically, and, you know, I remember at the time Speak of the Devil came out the, that there was people that thought maybe you took too many liberties with some of the classic Sabbath stuff. I loved what you did to it. I thought that, you know, you stayed true where you had to stay true, but you did your own thing where you had to do it. But but what do you remember about making, you know, recording Speak of the Devil? And from what I know, for the most part, a pretty live, live record. And then, like, you know, your your approach to that, I mean, I'm sure you were a big Sabbath fan going into it, or were you not? Not really. I wasn't a big Sabbath fan. I was into, you know, more of that Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and, and bands like that. Um, 
Neither uh, was Randy Rhodes, ir- ironically, Brad. I don't know if you know that, but but Randy Rhodes said many times he was not a Sabbath fan, and he actually had there's reports in Rudy Sarzo's book and in other places that he was gonna leave. Ozzy's band yep. after Speak of the Devil because he didn't want to do it and he didn't want believe Ozzy should have been doing a record of all Sabbath. So that's interesting that you kind of felt the same way. Yeah. It sounds like. Well, you know, being a guitar player, being a kid growing up, I mean, you're into the latest, greatest, uh, most killer guitar solos and and you know, stuff that I could actually learn from. Now, Black Sabbath was great, but Tony, you know, he was a great player and fit well with what he put out but i was just listening to other stuff you know and so when it came to do that record i knew i mean there's so many classic great melodies and the sabbath stuff that i had to stay with you know fairies wear boots and you know and and song and you know just i i loved the melodies awesome and i of course i would play that but when it came to songs like paranoid and stuff i just wanted to step out and be me you know and, uh, you know, it was an open book, you know, speaking of books, it was open, uh, you know, it was like, do whatever you want, stick to the classic solos, you know, the same with Randy, the same with Tony, you know, so, um, I kind of stepped out a little bit on that record and, uh, I want I was young, I, you know, I'm here, I'm, t- you know, 25, 26 years old, you know, and I, I just, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of want to do what you want back then, but you, you know, you try to figure out that, you know, don't overstep your boundaries here and, 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 you know, I've heard people say that, too, that I might have overplayed, but, but it's what it was. I was a kid, you know, and uh, I'm still proud of that record. And I and, love uh, it for that. I, as a fan, I love it for that. Like, I, I didn't if I wanted to hear Sabbath, I'd listen to the original records. One of the reasons why I love that record to this day is because I love hearing Tommy Aldridge play it. I love hearing Rudy play it. I love hearing you play it. And what you do with those songs, it's it's, you know, it's like a supercharged version at the time. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, that was a whole idea. You know, in like anything, you don't want to, you don't want to uh, replicate or duplicate a song and play it the exact same way. You know, what I mean, you want to take it to another level, whether it's tempo, uh, whether it's uh, it's feel, whether it's uh, changing a couple uh, solos here and there. So, you know, I just did what I thought was would work, and uh, and uh, you know, no no regrets. You know, but it's so funny because after Rudy left, you know, we. Uh, uh, you know, going over and playing in England and uh, I did a big show over there and uh, Tony Iommi showed up. He was backstage and I thought, oh, God, Tony Iommi. I'd never met him, you know, been to doing all this whole tour and everything and recorded, already recorded the record in September 82 and this was like, I think it was probably early 83 or late 82 when we went over to Europe and uh, Tony was there and I went, there's Tony. And I, I walked up to him to meet him and like stretched out my hand. He looked at me and he walked away. He didn't want to. Really? Meet he dissed you? <laughs> he was dissed it, wait, me. was this a Night Ranger gig or an Aussie gig? An Aussie gig, dude. So who, so wait, so who's in Aussie? If Rudy left, who was the bass player? Was it Pete Way? Pete Way was on base. Exactly. You were in the band with the Pete Way, the short-lived Pete Way, Ozzy. Oh my God, that must have been mayhem with those two together. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. <laughs> now it didn't last long. It was probably a month or less, whatever. But you know, Pete joined when Rudy left to do finish out the tour, and it was uh, mainly going to Europe. And but the show I'm talking about specifically was in was in London. 
uh, when he was there. But you know what? And Tony blew you off. I love Tony. I can't uh, believe it. Or he didn't recognize me. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. He just he turned around and walked away, and I went, "All right, nice to meet you too." Anyway, <laughs> you know this is uh, you know, I mean, uh, if I were to put myself in his shoes and had some like young kid coming in and disrupting your, you know, you're doing whatever to your songs. I mean, it's a little disturbing, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, it's what it is. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, the, the great thing about it is it, it was, I learned so much on that Aussie gig. I grew tenfold. I learned how to tour with a pro band. I learned what it's like to, you know, you know, what it takes to, to be on tour and, 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 um, you know, uh, pacing yourself and, you know, trying to stay healthy, uh, because believe me, which I'm sure Ozzy wasn't doing nothing. any of at that time. <laughs> what about those Raiders? Anyway, no, <laughs> hey, real quick, were yeah, you in the band? Um, were you in the band with the bass player that used to cut his own hands with like a cheese grater? You know about that guy? Who? What guy's that? Who? Ozzy had a bass player for a very short time. I believe his name was Don Costa. And he was known for actually having like a cheese grater on the back of his bass and cutting his own knuckles during the show and bleeding while he played. You didn't hear about that guy? I've, I've heard about that, but he never played with me or with Ozzy. He went straight from Rudy Sarzo to Don Airy. Uh, so, yeah, I think I heard about that. And, and you know, some things you uh, – uh, you, you don't want to see, so that, that'd be one. You know, being <laughs> no, but he's like the guy nobody can find out about, or there's like no tape of, or there's. But he was there for a short time. <laughs> there you go. I don't know where is he now. I don't know. I, that's what I want to know. <laughs> he's, uh, wow. Maybe he's working in a cheese shop somewhere. I don't know. Um, yeah. Listen, man, I, I've I've kept you for a long time. I appreciate the time. I appreciate you indulging me. I don't want to. Uh, take up more of your time, but I, I, re I love hearing about this stuff and it's great getting your, your perspective on it. Well, I love telling these stories cause it's a, it's a big part of my, of my youth. And, uh, you know, it was the biggest thing in my life, you know, um, you know, playing the, playing the Texas jam and, and with 80,000 kids and Ozzy showed up after being MIA for three days, showed up and he shaved his head and we bought him a wig and, and Rudy cut his hair down to, to match his real hair. And Ozzy went on stage and he used to shake back and his body would all shake and he'd rip his shirt off. And then, you know, we put this, this, this red fake blood under his scalp and he ripped his scalp off with this wig real slowly on stage and 80,000 kids with their mouths wide open. Just free. Oh my God, he's ripping his scalp off. It's just amazing. <laughs> You know, the, the, the things that happened back then, you know, then after he bit the head off the uh, the dove at the record company, you know, kids start bringing snakes and skunks and, and all these animals and throwing them on stage. And somebody threw a snake on the stage and it wrapped around Ozzy's neck and he freaked out. It's like, damn, it was crazy back then. It was the decade of decadence, man. It was the 80s, yeah. man. It was like, no rules. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, we'll remind everybody the new album from Night Ranger is out now, 40 Years in a Night with Contemporary Youth Orchestra, Night Ranger playing with an orchestra. It's out on DVD, Blu-ray, CD, vinyl, all the configurations. Check that out. Also, the band is on tour, nightranger.com for your dates. Tomorrow, Anaheim at the Grove, 
then you go to Utah, and then you go to State Line, Nevada. I'm going to be seeing you guys, if not sooner. I'll see you at Rock Island, which I host every year. That's in Key West. You're performing there. Uh, your night is January 17th. Great spot. Yep. That'll be a lot of fun. Yep. So, And then you got Vegas. Great. My buddy Adam's got you for a couple dates at the uh, the Strat. Those are rescheduled February yep. 16, yep, yep. 17 with Stephen Piercy. So you got a lot of good, stu- lot of good stuff coming up. Yeah, we're looking forward to it, man. Never a dull moment with this fam. We're lucky to be happy and healthy and touring and, and with a new record out. And, Eddie, thanks for having me again on your show, man. Always a pleasure, my friend. Always good to talk to you. And healthy, yes. I saw you recently. I know Jack is doing well. I know Kelly's doing well. That's most important, so that's good news as well. Say hi to the guys, yes. and uh, I will it. see you, if not in Key West, hopefully sooner, buddy. Thank you for the time. Thank you, Eddie. Talk to you soon. Take care. See you, man. Bye-bye. My thanks to Brad Gillis for joining me. It's always great to uh, chat with him. I believe he's coming to my big 40th anniversary and radio party, which is going down this coming Monday at the House of Blues in Vegas. If you're attending, I look forward to seeing you there. Check Ticketmaster, see if any tickets open at the last second. If you can squeak in there, if you want to join us on Monday night, where everything gets started around 745 for a long night of music and jams as I celebrate wrapping up my 40th year in broadcasting. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Be sure to check me out on Sirius XM every day, Faction Talk 103, live 3 to 5 Eastern, talk and rock music with you, or anytime on the Sirius XM app. And follow on social media at Eddie Trunk, X, Instagram, or Facebook page. Have a great week, everybody. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com.